Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes how to spot a false prophet, how to stop sinning, how to win any religious debate, and hypocrites in the church. Enjoy. I like to call this Sunday False Prophet Sunday. All of the readings that we have in the Old and the New Testament are all talking about the same thing, warning about the same thing, false prophets and wolves and sheep's clothing. But here's a good question. How do you recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing? The answer? Check for a zipper. <laughs> well, you know what to do. Smash that subscribe button and spam this annoying video on all of your friends' Facebook pages, Discord servers, and Instagram grams. And let's get into it. In the New Testament readings for today, in the historic one-year lectionary, Jesus talks about being aware of false teachers. He talks about recognizing the tree from its fruit, you know, do thistles bear forth with figs or something like that. A diseased tree cannot bear good fruit, and a, a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit, that kind of stuff. He's talking about beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. They seek to devour the believers. And the question is, how do we recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing? Now, if we were talking about a literal wolf disguised as a sheep, with a literal physical sheep disguise, then I would say, look for a zipper. Look for an indication that the wool covering this animal is not genuine. Because wolves and sheeps, wolves and sheep, wolves and sheep are shaped differently. They look very different. So. If you look at a sheep, generally they don't have zippers in their wool, generally speaking. And you don't have to be a sheeptologist to understand that, you know, if a sheep looks off, if it looks like a sheep is like shaped like a wolf and has wolf ears and a wolf snout poking out from underneath its wool, that something's wrong with this sheep. It may not, in fact, be a real sheep. You don't have to be an expert. And that's part of the fear that a lot of Christians have is that they say, well, you know, how can I possibly discern who is a false teacher because I'm not an expert. I didn't go to seminary. I don't have, you know, an eight-year doctorate or whatever. I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't spent all my time practicing, you know, discerning forgeries and studying all the newest ways that false teachers and false prophets have tried to trick people. But the fastest way that you can recognize something that is false is by understanding something that is genuine. I used an example in my sermon. I held up a dollar bill and I said, what is this? Everybody's like, it's a dollar. Yeah, it's a dollar. You recognize a dollar bill. Everybody's put them, and take them out, put them in and taken them out of their wallet, at least until the past 10 years. And now we all use credit cards. But everybody, for the most part, knows what a dollar bill looks like in the United States. If you're wherever else, maybe it's what a euro looks like. Whatever. But you know the currency. You know how it feels. You know how, you know, you almost know the weight of it. You hold it up to the light. You know what to look for. You can see when things are off. You can detect 
a fake piece of currency by knowing very well what a real piece of currency looks like. The fake piece of currency doesn't hold up to that scrutiny. And of course, I held up a piece of paper that just had $1 written on it. And I was like, that's fake. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. But the thing is, they'd never seen this forgery before. And in the same way, when you're, when you're confronted with false teachers, maybe you've never heard their false teaching before. But if you know the truth, if you know what a true teaching is, then you can say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That's wrong. That's wrong. What you're teaching is wrong because it goes against what I know is true. So I said, you can recognize the false by knowing the truth. Real catch, put on a bumper sticker. Eh? Now, this was easy enough with a fake dollar bill. I got a piece of paper that says $1 written on it. It looked like a piece of paper otherwise. But I, I continued with an example of, of Bible translations. I, I read out a translation from Brian Simmons's translation, heavy air quotes because it's not, of the Passion Translation of the Bible. And it says something along the line, it was, it was Psalm 23, it was supposed to be Psalm 23, something along the lines of, Yahweh is my best friend, he is my shepherd, he, me and him are such good buddies. And everybody was like, what? I've never heard this before. And then I, I flipped it over to ye olde King James Version, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters, etc., etc. And people instantly recognize the King James Version. And it isn't because the King James Version is the only valid translation. If I had read from them, even something like the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible or whatever, the HCSB is, you know, the North American Standard, the New American Standard Bible. If I had read them any faithful, competent translation of Psalm 23, they would have recognized it and been like, Psalm 23, Psalm 23. Even if it doesn't have leadeth besides still waters, they would have, they would have instantly recognized Psalm 23. But when I'm reading them, this forgery, this, this, this word vomit that Brian Sims, Simmons calls a translation, calls the passion translation, this pedantic drivel, they immediately recognized it as not genuine because they knew what Psalm 23 was. So when they heard this, Yahweh is my best friend, like it didn't hold up for a minute. And this is what I was telling them. This is what I'm telling you, is if you want to know when somebody's teaching something false about the Bible, you need to know what the Bible actually says. You need to study the Bible. You need to memorize verses. You need to, you need to, you know, talk to your pastor. You need to go to Bible study. You need to go to Sunday school. You need to go through catechism. Whatever it is, you need to study the truth of the Bible so you can recognize when someone presents a forgery. I went on to give a third example. And in this example, I said, okay, I'm going to tell you in advance that everything that I said, uh, everything that I'm going to quote is heretical. It's, it's not genuine. It is false. You should not listen to it. And then I quoted, your boy Joel Osteen, good old smiling Joel, you know, with his tight-fitting sheepskin suit. Joel Osteen, I quoted him from a book of his, where he's basically saying, you know, the Joel Osteen type things, where, you know, God wants you to be well. God wants you to be wealthy. Don't you understand? God wants you to be healthy. God wants to give you that promotion. God wants you to have your own house. God wants you to have all these things. And I finished with this quote from him. From this book, he says, um, it's something like Your Best Life, page 144, something like that. He says, 
Now you're gonna have to forgive people in your life. You may, you're gonna have to forgive yourself in your life. And you may even have to forgive God. And when I said that quote, when I said, you may have to forgive God, my, my faithful brothers and sisters in Christ physically cringed in their pews. The forgery was that apparent. The zipper on the wolf was that shiny that they immediately detected. They're like, that's fake. That's, that's not what scripture says. The Bible never says you're supposed to forgive God or that God has anything he needs to be forgiven for or that you'd have the authority to do it even if he did. They were able to recognize the forgery, the false, by knowing what was true. They knew the truth of scripture. Nobody else in the congregation had a seminary degree. None of them had a master's in divinity. None of them had a, a, a doctorate in ministry. None of them had eight years plus of theological education in the, you know, whatever, college, seminary, whatever. But all of them got it. They all knew the Bible enough to know that what Smiling Joe was saying was false. It was a lie. It was heresy. It was blasphemy. They were able to detect the false by knowing the truth. And this was something that I think needed to be repeated over and over in the sermon because people are not confident that they have the brilliance and the knowledge to be able to detect when someone is lying to them about scripture. But the way you gain that skill is by familiarity with the scripture, by familiarity with God's word. And when someone teaches contrary to it, it sets off all kinds of alarms in your brain because you know that's not true. I went on to explain that wolves wear sheep's clothing and they can wear different kind of colors of wool, right? But they tend to put the zippers in the same place. And what I meant by this is that there are a lot of common things to look for. There are a lot of places where liars and false prophets and false teachers tend to repeat the same glaring falsehood. I said, this is where you want to look for the zipper. How are they handling God's word? How are they talking about the word of God? Are they talking about the word of God and then using it to point to themselves and say, look at me, God, talk to me. I had a burning into my heart and God spoke to me in a dream and he told me about you. And he told me how wonderful you are and how much he's going to give you and bless you. The zipper that's in the same place with wolves is how they handle the word of God. They take the word of God and they mangle it and they make it about you, you being good, you getting whatever you want. Like the reading from Jeremiah today explained this. It says these false prophets, basically they preach what you want to hear. They say, oh, no harm will come to you. And then the people who hear these false prophets, the people who believe these false prophets, believe them because they're rejecting the word of God. And because they have stubborn hearts that they're listening to instead. So these false prophets are preaching vanities. They're preaching things which are false, but people want to hear. That's how you recognize a false preacher. That's where to look for the zipper in the wolf sheep skin disguise. That's where you look for like, ugh. They, they mangle the text of scripture to talk about themselves, how great they are. Oh, they spoke to God in the shower this morning. 
They talk about how great you are. Oh, you're not a sinner. You don't need to repent for nothing. God made you perfect and you're perfect today and you just need to name it and claim it. And they talk about things that you want to receive, things that you want to hear. You will be healed. You just have to have enough faith. You can handle this snake and, and it will not kill you if you have enough faith. You can get that car, that new house. You can get that promotion. You can get that power that you want. You can get that respect, that authority. Mm, those words sound so good, don't they? They know you want to hear them. And they use those words to make people listen. People say, oh, I do want a promotion. And God is promising me these things. Ooh, God is promising me all these good things. I better keep listening. And then they will funnel in this, this, this filth, this perverted gospel, this prosperity gospel, this lie, they will funnel that into your ear because you're like, oh, I want to hear more. Tell me more. I, you know, you don't even discern whether or not it's in scripture that God promised you a new house or whatever. They'll funnel that lie into your ear. And it's a lie. It is a lie. God doesn't promise that you're going to be healthy and wealthy. God promises your best life is not your best life now. It's your best life in heaven. It's your best life in the new earth. That's what you have to look forward to. So all of these promises, even though they're lies and they can't even deliver on them, let's say hypothetically they could and they could give you, they could promise you wealth and health and a new car and a promotion. Those may be good things, but they're not the best thing. Those things are not going to last. What you get, what you actually get from God is so much better. And it's permanent. It is forever. It is eternal life. It is the forgiveness of God. That's forever. It's eternal life with Christ Jesus your Lord. That's forever. Who cares if you get a new car, if that thing will rust and fall apart in 40 years? Who cares? It's not going to last. What is going to last is your soul and your eternal life in heaven or hell. And Christ has paid for your soul. He has paid for your sins with his death on the cross and promised you eternal life. So not only does God promise you this thing, he actually promises you this thing. But it's better than anything else you can get on this earth. So don't listen to these false prophets. Not only are they lying, but they're giving you something that's, that's less than what you actually are granted. What you actually are promised. See, Christ died on the cross to save your sins. Your pastor should be telling you this every Sunday. Your pastor should be telling you that you're a sinner, that he is a sinner. To repent of your sins, that Jesus has already paid for them. That you have eternal life guaranteed for you. Your sins were washed away in baptism when he hands you the body and blood of Christ. It is the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the strengthening of your faith. He should be telling you these things every week. And if he's not telling you these things, if he's telling you other things instead, things that distract you from God's word, things that distract you from God's commands and promises, that you need to approach your pastor in loving patience with your Bible in your hand, scripture ready to read from, and say, Pastor, priest, padre, God has said these things. He has promised these things. Your job is to remind us, to give these things to us, to declare the promises of God that he has promised these, these things that are for us. Pastor, priest, you need to do this. This is what the Bible says your job is. And if your pastor refuses, then he's a false prophet. And you found that zipper. You found that zipper in the wolf's sheep disguise. And you need to get rid of him. You need to drive him out like the lapdog of Satan that he is to deny you the promises of God. Whether it's to substitute something 
something temporary instead, or to just outright lie about what the Bible says about you, him, salvation, forgiveness of sins, that kind of thing. Allow your pastor the opportunity to be corrected by Scripture, and if he refuses, then he is not a pastor. He is a false prophet, a false teacher, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So, I hope you had fun with this rant. If you want to find the zipper, that's where you look. I guess, what, what should your takeaway be? I guess, okay, so this was the title of this sermon. In order to recognize what is false, it is important to know what is true. Study scripture. Know it better than any of the bills you put in or take out of your wallet. Know it better than any of your currency. Know it better than anything else where you can spot a fake from a mile away. Know your scripture. It's only going to help you. I hope you had fun. Take care. So you know that you are saved by grace through faith, not of your own works, so that nobody can boast. The death of Christ on the cross pays for your sin. So your salvation is already intact. But as a Christian, you want to know, how do I stop sinning? Well, let's get into it. How to stop sinning. There is one tried and true method that will prevent you from ever sinning anymore. Die. <laughs> when you're in heaven, you're never going to sin anymore. You're not going to be sinning in heaven. You're not going to be sinning in the new earth. That's the only guaranteed way that you, as a Christian, are going to stop sinning. Die. Now, this is not me telling you to take your own life. It's God's life. You don't have the authority to take it. It's not yours to take, to end. But Christians aren't completely helpless when it comes to resisting sin on this earth, even without dying. There are some ways that Christians have been successful in resisting sin where maybe non-Christians haven't. Paul talks about this today in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about two different, two different things that are opposed to each other. He talks about the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh is talking about the natural inclinations of sinful man, whereas the spirit is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Christian has the Holy Spirit with him. The spirit dwells in him. So Paul commands the Galatians and you to walk by the spirit. He says to walk by the spirit. He says that the things of the spirit are against the things of the flesh. He has two different lists that he uses here in Galatians 5. And everybody memorizes the second list, but nobody memorizes the first one for some reason. In the first list, he talks about works of the flesh. He says these are the works of the flesh. Things like, or things such as, then he lists off things like sexual immorality and, and, and unrighteous anger and, and impatience and stuff like that. Then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
gentleness, self-control. I'm sure I didn't get the list perfectly right. But he says that these two things are in opposition to one another. He says to walk in the Spirit, to avoid, or to walk by the Spirit, to avoid the work of the flesh, to avoid satisfying the desires of the flesh. Now this is something that only Christians can do because only Christians have access to the Holy Spirit. Only Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, so only the Christians can walk by the Spirit. The reality is that the unbelieving world can approximate morality. They can approximate doing good stuff. Civic morality, I believe somebody calls it. Civic righteousness. That's when you as a non-believer, choose not to murder somebody or choose not to steal or do something that it would be good if you had faith in God. But the difficulty that the non-believer has in not having the Spirit of God is that they are struggling against their flesh with their flesh. So their flesh desires to do one thing and at the same time they also, the conscience, that, that conscience, that, that little Jiminy Cricket inside their head is telling them, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't do that. You should avoid doing this bad thing. And their flesh, which is all that they have, struggles against their flesh. And while they, weigh, uh, while they may win in the moment, they may win an individual battle against temptation, against sin, against uh, some desire of the flesh, Ultimately, they're going to lose the war against the flesh. Ultimately, the flesh is going to win out in the end because that's all there is. Flesh fighting against flesh. No matter who wins, you lose. That's how it goes for an unbeliever. But for a believer, you have the Spirit of God with you. You have the Holy Spirit with you. You are able to walk by the Spirit. You don't have to rely on the flesh to fight the flesh. To fight the flesh. But instead, you rely on the Spirit. And rather than the works of the flesh, you, you rely on the fruit of the Spirit. This is peace, joy, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That's that list right there. So what exactly does this mean? What is the practical application here? Again, I want to reiterate this as many times as I have to. This does not mean that your salvation comes from you doing good things. This means once as a Christian, you are already saved then this is how you can live. This is some practical advice that you can follow. This is some, some sanctification advice that you can follow once you have already been justified. Once you already have the Spirit of God, then you can live with the Spirit of God. You can walk by that Spirit. So you have to have the Spirit first before you can walk by it. Now, this contention that Paul describes in Galatians 5 between the works of the flesh and, and, and walking in this, the fruit of the Spirit, he says that these things are against each other. And the practical application of this is that they're not compatible. Let me give you an example. Let's say you, you've got a friend or a brother or a sister who just really gets on your nerves. They really just know how to get under your skin and make you unrighteously angry. You sin in your anger. And this is, they, they, they just keep doing this. And if you rely on your flesh to struggle against your flesh, you're not going to succeed. But if you can walk by the Spirit, you can consider what is the fruit of the Spirit? What fruit of the Spirit would be the opposite of this? What fruit of the Spirit is against this, is contrary to this, is mutually exclusive to this unrighteous anger? Patience, maybe, or goodness. Maybe it's kindness or love. 
Maybe it's a combination of multiple of these, these examples of fruit of the Spirit. And you can dwell on these things and actively engage in these things. As a Christian, you are free to walk by the Spirit. You are free to love, to be patient, to be kind, to be good. And if you actively do these things, you cannot at the same time actively do the opposite. You can't walk in two directions at one time. It's not possible. They are mutually exclusive. The work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're just struggling with sin, you're saying, how can I overcome this sin? The answer isn't, oh, well, just resist hard enough. Just try hard enough not to do the thing. But rather think about the fruit of the Spirit. Think about this fruit, which is a gift of God, and exercise that fruit of the Spirit. Use that opposite. Use that opposite of, of hatred. Use love. Use that opposite of, of fear and discomfort. Use joy. Focus on these things that you've been given, these good things that you've been given, and they will work in contention against the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh. So, to reiterate, you are saved by Christ and his good work. His death on the cross and his resurrection pays for the consequences of your sin. And now as a Christian, you get to live with the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you. Because the Spirit dwells in you, you may walk by the Spirit. You are free in Christ to walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, you experience the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those kinds of things. And when you experience these and actively pursue these and actively enjoy these things, then you don't have space in your life. You don't have space in your works and your beliefs to just embrace the sin that you would rather do according to your flesh. You can't hate if you're embracing love. You can't be afraid if you're embracing the faithfulness, if you're embracing the understanding the faithfulness that God has for you, if you're embracing the joy, you cannot embrace evil when you embrace goodness. You cannot embrace maliciousness if you're embracing kindness. But the reverse is also true. If you reject these things of the spirit for the things of the flesh, then you're hurting yourself. You're hurting others as well. And you need to repent, return to Christ who died for you, forgive you for your sin, and gave you the Spirit. So if you want to avoid sin, you're not going to do it completely until you die. But if you want to resist sin, then think of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, what God has done for you. Think of these things. Thank God for these things and engage in these things. The fruit of the Spirit will overcome the work of the flesh. I hope that helped. You take care. Have a blessed week. Welcome to Christian Combatives. Today I will be teaching you how to win any religious debate guaranteed. Now, while I may be bitterly sarcastic, it's true that if you apply these techniques that I give you in this video, you will never again lose a debate about religion.
In fact, you can apply these techniques to debates or arguments about any topic and likewise find success. Guaranteed. How does it work? <laughs> Let's get into it. Before we even get into the technique, it's important to understand what a debate actually is. A debate is a verbal contest between two or more individuals. The goal of a debate is victory. Your goal is not to present your information or receive it. Your goal is not for you and your opponent to come to an agreement on a topic. The goal is certainly not for you, your opponent, or anybody in the audience to get a higher understanding of any given subject. The goal is victory. Now, if what you wanted by clicking on this video was to find ways to remove obstacles to convincing somebody of a point, to remove obstacles to understanding the truth, then what you're looking for is called apologetics. This is about winning every debate. Rule number one to win a debate is you never go on the defensive. Don't even talk about your position. By doing so, you allow your opponent to put you in a position where the only thing you can do is lose ground. It does not matter if you are correct or not. It does not matter if all the facts are on your side, if you have all of the stats, if you're the most eloquent person in the world. It does not matter. Once you put yourself in the position to defend anything, then the possibility for you to lose becomes a reality. Never defend. Rule number two, never define your position. Never explain exactly what it is you believe. Anytime the opponent says, well, this is why what you believe is wrong, and they describe some flaw in your logic, all you have to do is say, I didn't believe that. I never said I believed that. That's a straw man of my position. By never defining your position, you are invincible. Without giving something for the opponent to latch onto as your firm conviction, you have nothing they can attack. Never define. The third and most important rule to win this debate is to always be the skeptic. As the skeptic, you have evolved beyond the level of a mere contender in an equal debate, and you are now the judge as well. How does this work? As a skeptic, you don't have to present any information, so you don't have to do anything that you might screw up and lose. And your opponent, on the other hand, he may present whatever he'd like. It doesn't matter how convincing he is. It doesn't matter how true the facts are. It doesn't matter how well he presents any of these things. It does not matter because as the skeptic, you have reserved the intellectual superiority to walk away from the debate and say, I was not convinced. I was not convinced. By making yourself the skeptic, you also make yourself the judge and can declare at any point that you have won the debate. Your opponent has failed to convince you and you walk away victorious, no matter what you said during the entire debate. It does not matter. Now, of course, you can use phrases to help bolster that intellectual superiority. 
You can use canned phrases such as Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. By saying something like this, you again set yourself up as the judge. No matter what they present as evidence, you can say, well, that evidence was not extraordinary enough for me to believe your claim. Again, as long as you are the judge in this contest, you can merely declare yourself the victor no matter how poorly you do. I hope you've all enjoyed this instructional and very sarcastic video. My expectation is that some of you may even take some of these techniques and apply them on your friends to their utmost annoyance. Some of you may in fact take this video and link it directly to others who have used the techniques without knowing how annoying it is. Some of you may have even watched the video and thought to yourself that a discussion about information may in fact be infinitely more valuable to learning truth than a debate. That being said, debates sure can be entertaining, and it really is great to win, even if you're wrong. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Take care, and God bless. One lazy afternoon in a small Midwest town, the pastor walked down the street, when who should he see coming out of the grocery store but old Grandma Schmeckenpepper. How's it going, Martha, he said to her, waving. I haven't... One lazy afternoon in a small Midwest town, the pastor was walking down the street, and who should he see coming out of the grocery store but old Grandma Schmeckenpepper. How's it going, Martha, he said to her. I haven't seen you in church for a while. Is everything okay? Is it something I said? Oh, no, no, Father, Mrs. Schmeckenpepper replied. Nothing like that. I just, I can't go to church anymore. It's so full of hypocrites. That's all right, the pastor replied. There's always room for one more. What does this have to do with today's reading from Corinthians? Well, let he who stands take heed lest he falls. Smash that subscribe button, spam this annoying video on all of your favorite Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, and any other virtual or digital media that you have. And let's get into it. In today's epistle to the Corinthians, Paul talks about people in the Old Testament. He talks about the sins that they committed and the various, the various punishments that they had to endure as a result of their sins. Being destroyed by the destroyer, or the thousands who fell in one day, those who grumbled against God and were set upon by serpents. Now, he's telling this to the Corinthian church, but there's an applicability to the present-day church as well. Now, old Grandma Schmeckenpepper, when she was thinking about herself and thinking about the other members of the church, she saw them as the sinners that she didn't want to be around. She saw herself as in good standing. That, that wasn't a sin that she was committing. She didn't fit in with that crowd of sinners. The reality is, however, that everybody who goes to church is a sinner. 
whether they know it or not. And they have different sins, but they're all in need of the same Savior. Paul's warning to the Corinthians and his encouragement to the Corinthians, his warning first, is the danger of sin. All of these people in the Old Testament, they fell victim to sin, and as a result, they suffered for their sin. And he, he, he turns this warning to the people in the Corinthian church, and he basically is telling them, you know, you guys are committing some of these sins too. You shouldn't be surprised if you receive a similar punishment. These sins that were committed by the people of the Old Testament were bad, but they were written down so you can understand the, the severity of sin. And he says, he says a phrase that just got stuck in my head, something along the lines of, let he, who, let he who stands or let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And it's this warning, this warning of constant humility that the Christian, as much as he thinks he's conquered his sin or her sin, and maybe he has, maybe there's a habitual sin or a temptation that, that has been conquered, thanks be to God. But that's no, that's no reason for them to let their guard down. There's no reason for you to let your guard down. Maybe you have conquered a sin, and that's fantastic. But you need to keep your guard up, and more importantly, you need to keep your eyes focused on the cross. Because just as much as the faithful in the Old Testament and the faithful in the New Testament fell into the sins, into the temptations to sin, like horrible sins, you're not immune to temptation either. There are basically two lies that Paul confronts here uh, when he's giving comfort to the Corinthians and to the Christians like you. The first lie is that sin is inevitable. The second lie is that sin is unforgivable. The first lie that sin is inevitable, this often is manifest in people who think, well, this is my identity. This is who I am. I have to do this. I have to be true to myself. Why bother stressing out over something I can't control? It's inevitable. It's going to happen anyway, so I may as well do this sin. And the second lie is often manifest in, in, in the kind of thinking that uh, this, this sin is unforgivable. I cannot... I'm an evil, horrible, rotten person, feeling contrition for sin is a good thing, but saying, God can't possibly forgive me for this sin. I'm just too bad for God to forgive me. No one will have, want to have anything to do with me. No family or friends will want to have anything to do with me once they find out about this sin. Now, Paul confronts both of these things in the text. The first thing he says in regards to those who say that sin is inevitable, uh, he explains that, that with every temptation, God gives a way out. And that way out is, is Christ, is the power of God. Now, this verse is misunderstood when people think, oh, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. God regularly gives you more than you can handle, but not more than you can handle with his help, not more than he can handle. So when you're faced with temptation, look to Christ. Don't look to your own willpower alone, but look to Christ and trust in him and trust in his forgiveness, his death on the cross to pay for your sins, not just in your ability to be perfect. As for sin being unforgivable, to think that your sin is great is to think that your Savior is small. You have a great Savior. There is no sin you can do that is bigger than your Savior. So Christ died on the cross for your sins as true God and true man. And, and he's His blood has covered all of these sins. Again, there's no sin. Paul says this uh, in the text. He says that there's nothing, there's no sin, there's no temptation that's not, that's not common to man. It's not Basically, your sin is not unique. Sin usually repeats itself. Sin is not, is rarely, rarely creative and new. You'd be surprised when you get to heaven how many other saints up there have had the same sin that you've dealt with. 
So again, don't look at it as something that's unforgivable. Don't look at it as something that's inevitable. But look at it as a reminder to turn to the cross and to trust in God, not only to help you with temptation, but to solve the issue by forgiving your sin. Well, I hope you had fun. I better turn this phone off before it blows up. You have a wonderful day.